0: don't you ever take for granted the privilege of getting to go to church that's under attack there is a reproach that comes of being a follower of christ we in america have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture a church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with christ The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The whole business. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in. Political correctness, one of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have quite the controversial subject to cover today, but first please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform in which you're listening to us upon. We have several social media platforms with all sorts of material that you can listen to and read. Be sure to check us out on our fan page on Facebook. When you type in at Our Mighty Fortress, the page is growing more and more every day, and we put all sorts of media there, so it's pretty good. You can also visit our website, which is OurMightyFortress.com. If you feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so through our website and the established PayPal link. If we've helped you in some way through our work, please tell us at ourmightyfortress at gmail.com. My following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I want to talk about a very controversial subject pertaining to what is called... The Shows. This is going to be a two part series talking about the various parts of the arts that often bring us entertainment. This includes plays, movies, TV shows, and even various types of sports that we watch. The arts are part of our everyday lifestyle here in the modern Western world even commercials that we see during and in between TV programs to the billboards we pass by on the way to work are aspects of the arts. Of course, in our technological age, we have various forms of social media that play a major role in our daily entertainment, as well as our communication. We can say that the arts play a massive role in our lifestyles. There have been many opinions in history as to what Christians should do when it pertains to the arts. I want to explore what the scriptures say on the matter, but I also want to explore early Christian writings to see if we can clear up any ambiguity about said scriptures. Someone can say, well, that's just your interpretation of that verse. (laughs) Have you ever heard that one? But we're going to see a little more clearly as we get closer back to the apostles and we get to see the type of thinking that was present in the early church. Through this, we might be able to get maybe a certain view or their perception of how they saw the scripture. It'll really help in our understanding for today. We're going to look at the application to our modern day and how we can please God in the entertainment driven society that we live in. Is there a way to navigate through the evil or should we just wholeheartedly abstain from it all? This subject is going to be quite controversial, but buckle up and get ready for what uh, to be to essentially be challenged on what you believe about this because this is a huge subject. With that introduction, Let's get right into this. I want to start with basic biblical principles in how the arts are supposed to be used, since this is the guiding practice in how we should interact and live in the world. It is important to have this foundation in knowing what God believes about a subject. Otherwise, we're just left with conflicting opinions, and we hear conflicting opinions all the time over various subjects. This is what makes the subject about entertainment so controversial. It's also another reason why I want to take a look at the early church fathers' writings on this matter because they too very much lived in an entertainment-driven society, much like we do today. Given that they're pretty close to the apostles, it'd be pretty good to consider what they have to say on the matter. The scripture has much to say when it comes to the eyes of a person otherwise called the eye gate. We should note that Satan has used the same process of deceiving people since the very beginning in the Garden of Eden by first getting them to look at sin, desiring sin, and then taking what they should not have. In the book of 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-16, through 16, it says, Quote, love not the world neither the things that are in the world if any man love the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father but is of the world quote. this progression is all through the sinful human nature of man And it can be seen even among non-biblical sources. You can look back into history and see the fall of man through this same progression. Even in our modern world, there is a reason why trillions of dollars are spent in advertising all over the world to get you to look at a product, a company will do this by almost any means, even if the avenue of approach has nothing to do with the actual product. We'll talk more about that later. Many times when the scripture references about, say, guarding your eyes, it does so with a man and specifically looking upon a woman in lust. Unless you're blind, (laughs) the images will come through the eye gate, but what happens from there is different between men and women. Though, this does apply in like manner. What comes through the eye gate gets down to the heart, and that's the problem. So, with men, one of the main problems is lust, right? Lusting after you know sexual desires uh, with a woman. This is the ver- it, has, it has been the case from the very beginning. Okay, this is alongside say wealth and power. The principles are still the same for a woman, though about, say, protecting her eyes and what she may lust after, though it will be different. This, of course, doesn't may not have anything to do with anything sexual, uh, though it can be the case of uh, many other temptations that women have that are different from men. There are many that we can list, and there are a few scriptures that get this idea across. In Psalms 101 in verse 3, it says, quote, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave unto me. The book of Job, chapter 31, and verse 3 says, quote, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Matthew, chapter 5, and verse 28, this is Jesus speaking specifically, he says, quote, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart." Quote. Most everything starts with the eye-gate, and hence the examples in Scripture. The next part is about protecting one's heart. This goes alongside what takes place in the mind. The progression as a person looks at something or someone and then starts to lust after it or them. In other words, what goes into the eye gate goes into the heart and mind. In dealing with the heart of man, the scriptures say in the book of Psalms, chapter 51, verse 10, Quote, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Proverbs, chapter 4, and verse 23 says, Quote, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, quote, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. With the last aspect, which the Bible clearly tells us to watch out for, is the sin of pride. Once the sin has gone through the eye gate... And then sat in the heart now the pride of life comes forth when we take that sin into our bosom there are many ways in which this can happen and not only in the physical aspects but christ hit upon the sin that comes forth even in our minds pride comes forth especially when we try to hide sin so we've already taken whatever we wanted and then we try to hide it well that's pride there are several stories to reference instances, uh, references in scriptures, but they're pretty lengthy, so I'm not going to read them all. But you can look at this type of progression in sin with the with the story of Achan in Joshua chapter seven, very interesting story there. Also in Second uh, Samuel chapter twelve with the story of David and Bathsheba, you're going to see this progression take place from the eyes to the heart to the taking of sin. It happens over and over and over again. Really, we look at pride and how it just gets us into so much foolishness in this life. And even when it comes to the specific aspects of Christian living, proud Christians will fight amongst each other. This is crazy. This is especially true of the conversations that take place about the arts and how the church should utilize such. There were so many specific principles dealing with sin that God just goes over and over again uh, in the scriptures, but all of them are going to revolve around the progression of the loss of the eyes, loss of the flesh, and the pride of life. This is important to understand if we're going to approach the arts in determining what God would be pleased with and what he wouldn't be pleased with. Learning the progression of how Satan gets man, the fall, and sin will also directly help us figure out the arts to include the visual and written media content. I want to begin to ask some questions about perception in the early church on this matter. I want to start to build the background around another Christian who happens to be described as an anti-Nicene church father. Anti meaning before and Nicene, the Nicene Council, so before the Nicene Council, this Christian's name was Tertullian, and he lived around 200 AD at the height of the Roman Empire and its entertainment. Let me first describe what the entertainment life was like in Rome to help paint a more vivid picture of what Tertullian is going to say about it. We have to understand that The Roman Empire had magnified entertainment in ways that man had not previously done. For instance, there may have been a horse race or chariot racing that could have taken place in smaller venues, but not the magnitude of what was called the Circus Maximus. This massive structure grew into what could arguably have been the largest structure in ancient Rome. It had the capacity to fit over two hundred and fifty thousand people, which, at its minimum, could be the a quarter of Rome's population. Think about it. We have college stadiums, college football stadiums today that fit one hundred and ten thousand at most. I think is the largest. And if you go over certain capacity, you could get one twenty in there. But that was. Nothing compared to what Rome had built. Now think about that. That was pretty astounding for the Roman Empire. Think about that. That was 2,000 years ago. It was built in the 6th century BC, and this was well before Imperial Rome. The main purpose was to host chariot races, but it did have the capability to host other events, especially during festivals. This is where the term Ludi Romani, or Roman games, became popular. These games were often used to honor Roman deities. It was in 50 BC where Julius Caesar ordered that the seating be extended to go around the whole track. This would result in the largest seating capacity that the Circus Maximus would have. And this structure would stand for about a thousand years in total. That's pretty astounding. Now, there are many who know about the Circus Maximus, where the Roman chariot races took place but there are few who do not know about the Roman Colosseum. This massive structure still stands in its remnants today in Rome, and it hosted the Gladiatorial Games. It was originally called the Flavian Amphitheater, and its construction started around 72 AD under the reign of Emperor Vespasian. Built like an ellipse, it could seat around 55,000 people, which, of course, is still quite a feat, given the sound projection that everything it was designed for. I mean, you could stand in the middle of the Colosseum and everybody could hear you speak. That's pretty astounding. Now what else is pretty interesting is the Colosseum was supposedly funded by the money that was looted from the Jewish temple in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, that's kind of ironic in a way that the funds that were meant to fund the work of God were used to fund utter depravity by the heathen. Many know the Greek and Roman theaters as well and the debauchery that would take place in them, much like the greater Circus Maximus and the Colosseum. You had many enactments of pagan deities that you know took place here as well as filthy and immoral practices. So for a Christian living during this time in an entertainment-driven society, what would they think and act about the matter? We don't have much written about the Roman games by the apostles because much of it was still being grown when the apostles were still alive. It really, like I said, the Colosseum wasn't even begun to start, uh, start in its construction until around 72 AD, so that's already... Most of the apostles were already martyred, and then, of course, you had John and maybe a few that were left during that time, but we don't have much written about the Roman games. So that being said, I want to see what some of the people that came after them, pretty close to when they lived, what the church would have thought about that time. So I want to spend the rest of uh, part one in this series really looking at what these men of God said. No matter if you agree or disagree with many of the anti-Nicene church fathers, we do have to weigh what they say very carefully. They are very close as to how early Christians thought, especially in the matter of entertainment. Tertullian writes his treatise on what he titles The Shows, and it's quite convicting, being in the. 21st century, we tend to overlook the gravity of this subject because we too live in an entertainment-driven society. He writes in the beginning that there are many Christians that say that there's nothing wrong with the arts and that all things are given by God uh, to us to enjoy this in, in this life. These Christians would also say that there is no offense to God, and as long as you believe in the one true God, it doesn't matter what the pagans demonstrate. Tertullian states, quote, But this is precisely what we are ready to prove, that these things are not consistent with true religion and the true obedience to the true God. End quote. I want to make a quick note here about these comments. The conversation has not changed much in almost 1800 years. That's absolutely fascinating. You hear the same kinds of arguments and statements today. This same stance, as well as its responses, are still being hashed out in our Christian culture and society today. Tertullian makes an interesting statement about not looking for specific commands in everything, but looking at principle. He says, quote, Fortified by this knowledge against heathen views, let us rather turn to unworthy reasonings of our own people, For the faith of some, either too simple or too scrumptious, demands direct authority from Scripture for giving up the shows and holds out that the matter is a doubtful one, because such abstinence is not clearly and in words imposed upon God's servants. Well, we never find it expressed with the same precision. Thou shalt not enter the circus or theater. Thou shalt not look on combat or show. As it is plainly laid down, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not worship an idol, thou shalt not commit adultery or fraud." Now Tertullian makes a very valid point here in that there is not a thou shalt or thou shalt not for everything in this life, but we do have everything based upon principle. These principles are found in the Word of God, and they are repetitive through the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't need a specific command from God with some new thing that man devises, because God already handled it a long time ago. With the Circus Maximus, Tertullian has much to say about the pagan worship rituals associated with the horse races and the spectacles, as you know they would be massive in scale many times. He says that not only the names of the events are named after the pagan gods, but the statues of the pagan gods are everywhere around the circus. He says, quote, I mean the demons and spirits of evil. What an ag- aggregation of idolatries you see accordingly in the decoration of the place. Every ornament of the circus is a temple by itself, end quote. About the horse races themselves mimicking the pagan stories, like that of Apollo or Circe, he writes that even these events are tainted. He says, quote, In former days, equestrianism was practiced in a simple way on horseback. And certainly, its ordinary use had nothing sinful in it. But when it was dragged into the games, it passed from service of God into the employment of demons. End quote. What does he say there? He said that there's nothing wrong with raising horses, and even racing horses. But when you drag it into what had become in the Circus Maximus and the dedication to the pagan deities and these types of things, it passed from what is of God into the service of demons. Now, when it came to the gladiatorial games, I would think that the decision for Christians would be quite a bit easier. I mean... At least in its literal aspects people fighting to the death killing and slaughtering each other and not to mention all the other events that would take place in the coliseum i mean you wouldn't think that that would be a controversial subject amongst christians but it was and in all actuality there is quite a more controversial subject in how far we should take combat games but i'll have to address that later the coliseum would have executions as well as what God would call murder to take place to the applauding and cheering crowd of 50,000 plus at any given time. Man is absolutely fascinated with blood and violence, but not naturally. We actually abhor such a thought and even flinch at the idea when we're young or until we're introduced to it. There is much to be said on this matter that I'm going to eventually deal with in a future podcast, especially in uh, dealing with PTSD and the struggles of man with violence. But when a person is introduced to bloodshed, an addiction can develop that's not easily left behind. This goes for those who participate in the killing, but also for those who were, you know, just willing to be there and watch. How many millions of people would cycle in and out of the Colosseum through the year to watch others slaughter each other? I want you to think about that. Even this was not enough. Animals were thrown in and to put forth different challenges, and it was even said that the Colosseum was filled with water to fight mock sea battles. The Colosseum was even used to punish political enemies like Christians for instance, and people would line the seats to watch this. You will never be more astounded than to man's thirst for blood. There is a story in another of the early church father writings of Augustine that really illustrates this problem with the draw of the gladiatorial games and the thirst for blood. It is the story of his friend Alipus. The story, I think, perfectly illustrates the issue with the bloodlust, and as I read it, maybe there's some things that may come to your mind that sound quite familiar about our own modern culture. We'll deal with that next podcast, but let's see if you start to pick up on some of these things as I read this story. It says, quote, For being utterly opposed to and detesting such spectacles, he, he's talking about who was one day met by chance by divers of his acquaintances and fellow students returning from dinner, and they with a friendly violence drew him, vehemently objecting and resisting into the amphitheater, on a day of these cruel and deadly shows, he thus protesting, "'Though you drag my body to that place and there place me, can you force me to give my mind and lend my eyes to these shows? Thus shall I be absent while present,' and so shall overcome both you and them. Hearing this, his friends dragged him on, nevertheless desirous perchance to see whether he would do as he said. When they have arrived thither, he had taken their places as they could, and the whole place became excited with the inhuman sports. But he, shutting up the doors of his eyes, forbade his mind to roam abroad with such naughtiness and would he have just shut his ears also? For upon the fall of one in the fight, a mighty cry from the whole audience stirring him strongly, he, overcome my curiosity, had prepared as it were to despise and rise superior to it, no matter what it were, opened his eyes, and was struck with a deeper wound in his soul than the other whom he desired to see was in his body and he fell more miserably than he on whom fall that mighty clamor was raised, which entered through his ears and unlocked his eyes to make way for the striking and beating down of his soul. For directly when he saw that blood, he therewith imbued a sort of savageness. Nor did he turn away, but he fixed his eyes, drinking in the madness with the guilty contest and drunken with the bloody pastime. Nor was he now the same as he came in, but he was one of the throng that came unto and the true companion of those who had brought him thither. Why need I say more? He looked, he shouted, was excited, carried away with him the madness of which would stimulate him to return, not only with those who first enticed him, but before them, yea, to drag others in also, end quote. What a powerful story. Tertullian really sums up this story by Augustine and says, quote, No one partakes of such pleasures such as these without their strong excitements. No one comes under their excitements without their natural lapses. These lapses create passionate desire, end quote. An unsafe person can hear this story and think, well, what's the big deal? But a Christian knows how strong the pool of sin and the world is. Not only this, but there are differences between the attraction of various types of sin as well as the consequences. Very few would argue against the addiction tendency of various drugs or even psychological addictions like gambling or pornography. But one of the most overlooked even in our modern culture, is the effect of bloodlust and violence. There is much to be said on this specifically, but the Colosseum and similar events would demonstrate that such a draw was just such an enticement for mankind. The next situation that Tertullian addresses is the immodesty and nakedness of the arts, particularly with the theater. This is a pretty powerful point because the world's entertainment knows that sex sells, even in ancient times. He speaks of women who were often scantily clad and the shows seeking to have men lust after them. He says, quote, "...the very harlots, too." victims of the public lust are brought upon the stage. Their misery increased as being there in the presence of their own sex, from whom they alone publicly before every age and of every rank, their abode, their gains, their praises are set forth. And even that in the hearing of those who should not hear such things and quote, what is he saying? That sure, the women on stage who were scantily clad doing, you know, various things would get the, Praises, but they'd also get the hooting and hollering and the the vulgar things that would come out of you know men's mouths. Specifically, he then goes on to say how men would behave themselves in these shows, acting like fools. And he states in his conclusion about the immodest theater, he says, "Quote: How is it that the things which defile of man is going out of his mouth, are not regarded as doing so when they go in his eyes and ears?" when eyes and ears are the immediate attendance on the the spirit, and that can never be pure, whose servants are in waiting are impure. You have the theater forbidden, then, in the forbidding of immodesty. To finish off the writings of Tertullian, I want to show his emphasis about his Christian critics as he's writing about the games. Now This is a pretty fascinating response, and I'll say why after. Here is what he said. He said, quote, now remember, this is him speaking to his Christian critics. He says, quote, thou art too dainty, Christian, if thou wouldest have pleasure in this life as well as in the next. Nay, art thou a fool if thou thinkest that this life's pleasures are to really be pleasures. The philosophers, for instance, give the name of pleasure to quietness and repose, and that they have their bliss, and that they find entertainment. They even glory in it. You long for the goal, and the stage, and the dust, and the place of combat. I would have you answer me this question. Can we not live without pleasure? Who cannot but with pleasure die? For what is our wish but the apostles to leave this world and be taken up into the fellowship of the Lord? You have your joys where you have your longings, end quote. Now, I spent a considerable amount of time looking at Tertullian's writings and even that excerpt from Augustine for a reason. You see the progression of sin, and even in the story of Alipus, where it seems almost Foolish that, you know, well, I'll go with you, but I'm going to close my eyes as the gladiator games are going on. I mean, it just seems foolish, but we really are that foolish overall. But what fascinated him is the moment that he opened his eyes and the thirst of blood, the bloodlust that would enter his soul. And as ridiculous as you may think that sounds, Think about the scores and scores of people that cycled through the Roman Colosseum. And obviously, it did deceive Christians as well. So it's not wise to just downplay the effect of the Roman Colosseum or the effects of violence upon the human mind. Like I said in the beginning, you don't have to agree with everything about Tertullian or even Augustine's perceptions, but you do have to take them seriously. This subject is not a new one to our Western Christian media-driven environment. One could argue that, besides our modern time, there wasn't another time in history outside the Roman Empire that glorified the venues of entertainment. I mean, one thing's for sure, there wasn't another civilization outside of Rome until our modern time in which the emphasis of entertainment swayed a society and was so grand in its magnitude. This also goes to show that we can at least get a glimpse into how early Christians would navigate the world that they were a part of. Next week, in part two of the series, we're going to look at our modern world and specifically the American-driven entertainment industry. Are there clear lines that we can draw to know where the sin lies? Is there a way to navigate evils and enjoy certain aspects of the arts? These are fascinating questions that we are going to address next week. Until then, I want to thank you for listening, and be sure to follow us on the podcast media. Please take a look at our website, ourmightyfortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content and remember to find your refuge and strength in our mighty fortress.